John Caldera here. What happened to Colorado after the last election? It was savagery if you're a conservative. For our television program, Devil's Advocate, I sat down with Marianne Goodlin. She's the political reporter for the Gazette newspapers and Colorado politics. This is the audio version of our television show, Devil's Advocate. You can watch that program by going to YouTube and looking at our television channel. That's IITV. IITV. I hope you enjoy this. Before the election, the numbers in the in the Senate were what? 2114. 21-14. Now where do they look like they are? 23-12. 23-12. So another two-seat difference. Right. Going... In, in the other direction. And it's it's one seat shy of a supermajority. And that's the kind of thing that I think people should be listening for in 2023 when the General Assembly comes back. All right, so we're recording this the day after the carnage of the Colorado elections. We think we have most of the results in, but we might be off on a couple of things. If we are, forgive us. Marianne Goodlin with Colorado, uh, with Colorado Politics, both the Springs Gazette and Denver Gazette and so many other things. You've been on top of this. Um, let me just say it right out. Carnage, bloodbath. I didn't see this coming. Did you? No, not at all. Uh, particular in the Senate, I, in the state Senate, and, and, and I'll put my, my remarks first on the General Assembly, I thought the Republicans had a decent chance of picking up a couple of seats, uh, particularly in Senate District 8, which is the uh, northwestern and central, uh, north central mountains. I thought that was, a, that was a possible for them. I thought, you know, maybe Senate District 3, because I was watching the spending quite a bit, and the spending was sort of seemed like it was tapering off by the. Well, why, don't we, why don't we put some context here first? Okay. All right. So we, we know the big races, the right. the, the the marquee uh, races we, we know about, and um, Heidi lost with big numbers, O'Day lost in something that was much larger than I expected. Uh, all the state seats went uh, to the Democrats. As of there are taping what we thought would be two pretty safe Republican U.S. congressional seats, both Boebert and the, the eighth going to Kirkmeyer, are going the other direction. This is mind-boggling that out of our 10-person delegation, there'll be two Republicans. Um, you know, the idea that Colorado is somehow still purplish or has a uh, you know, red uh, streak to it, no, I don't, I don't see it at all. It's just that all of that was absolutely mind-boggling. But what really got me was what you're talking about in the state legislature, where I operate mostly, where it really affects Coloradans day in and day absolutely. out. Um, so before, before yesterday, the conventional wisdom was, you know, Republicans have a shot, an outside shot, to take back the Senate, right. to stop the carnage at the legislature, to stop all the progressive bills that are being signed. You know, they can't change a whole lot, but they can stop the bleeding. All they need to do is get to that magic number of 18, and they were down by how many votes? 
they were down four. And, and what didn't help, what made this job just a little bit tougher was when Kevin Fiola uh, switched from Republican to Democrat in, in August. That, that really put the, the wind behind the sails, I think, for the Democrats, because you had a 21-14 Democratic advantage in the Senate, which meant that out of the seven competitive seats that were up for election last night, out of the 17 total, the Republicans were going to have to win at least four of the seven. Four out of seven competitive. Four out of the seven competitive. And, but, but really, it's actually six out of the seven competitive because they had to hold on to the two Republican seats that were also competitive. All right, so now going they into this. had to sweep, the, ta sweep yeah. the, the table. But going into this, you know, I thought, you know, it's going to be tough for Heidi to win this. It's going to be tough for O'Day to win this. I wouldn't be surprised if, if um, Republicans won the treasurer's office or if Pam Anderson won secretary of state. That's certainly in the realm of possibility. But I felt pretty comfortable Republicans would at least make gains in the state Senate. It's like, no, I, I don't see them getting to 18. I really don't see them to get, getting to 18. But I see them making forward progress. Why this would be important is that, and we'll talk about the House in a second, is that in committees, particularly in the House, if you have a two-person majority in a committee, you've got to convince two Democrats to stop a bill. If it's only one person you have to convince, you have a shot that maybe you can get that a swing Democrat to vote with the Republicans. And we, saw, and we saw examples of that in the 2022 session, and I'll give you a really good one. It was a bill that Jerry Sonnenberg ran on hospital visitation. That bill was, was destined to go down in flames. Every time somebody tried to run one of the, and this was tied to COVID, uh, but every time somebody tried to run a bill like that, it went down in flames in the House. In the Senate, it goes to State Affairs, which Jerry sat on. The chair of State Affairs was Julie Gonzalez. And all he needed was one Democrat to vote with him to get that bill out of committee. Julie Gonzalez, who had lost multiple family members to COVID, wound up being the champion and getting that bill out of committee. It made it to the governor's desk and he signed it. And by the way, the State Affairs Committee is known as the Kill, Kill Committee. Committee. And that's yep. the committee, committee that the Senate president sends it to so it dies. And it didn't die. It didn't die. Because it was close enough. So, I, I, think that, I, and I think that was a kind of a big surprise when she uh, gave it wings and, and off it went. So here I am watching on, on, uh, um, on election night and I'm expecting the needle to at least go up a seat or two. Instead, <whistles> so again... Before the election, the numbers in the, in the Senate were what? 21-14. 21-14. Now, where do they look like they are? 23-12. 23-12. So another two-seat difference. Right. Going. In, in the other direction. And it's, it's one seat shy of a supermajority. And that's the kind of thing that I think people should be listening for in 2023 when the General Assembly comes back. Why is a supermajority important? couple of different things. Number one, if progressives are having problems with the governor over certain issues, um, he has kind of reined them in on some things, collective bargaining in the 2022 session, uh, fracking bans, we've, you know, that, that kind of thing. And he would, he would say, no, that's too far. I don't want to go, I don't want to go that route. With a supermajority, if the governor threatens a veto, they'll just say, hmm, Go, go for it, and we'll, right. we'll, we'll overturn your veto. So there's veto power. But the other one, and the one that I think people really need to key in on, 
is the idea of what the General Assembly can send to the ballot, and that's constitutional amendments. And we're already... As it stands right now, there were several uh, statutory changes on the ballot that were referred. Those were the ones with letters, like FF and GG. Mm -hmm. And when I put something on the ballot, like Prop 121, which was a tax reduction, I got to get a whole bunch of signatures, and it costs a lot of money. But the legislature, as long as they just get a simple majority in both houses, it's on the ballot. That, and that's for statutory well, And the governor measures. doesn't have to sign it yeah. or veto it. It's just, so all they have to go, is, uh, and when you have a democratically controlled uh, legislature, that's easy. Just go, well, we'll let the people decide. And poof, it's on the ballot. Right. Where citizens have to fight really hard to get it on the Correct. ballot. You're telling me that if there's a supermajority, they can put on a constitutional amendment onto the ballot. And we had several constitutional amendments on the ballot last night. Those were, those were bipartisan measures. They weren't difficult for people, you know, the, the And they measure, passed. And they passed, they all passed with that 55%, actually most of them passed with like 60, 70%. But I'm talking about the controversial things that would never get past either a, uh, a legislature that had the Senate controlled by Republicans and the House controlled by Democrats, or that they need, or that the Democrats needed a couple more votes to get, to get that measure out of, out the door. The Senate is one vote short of a supermajority. Now, what what could they be looking at? I'm already hearing a couple of different things. Number one, a constitutional amendment uh, that would, in effect, put the Reproductive Health Equity Act. This is the bill that uh, they passed during the session to affirm the right to abortion. That's, that, they were talking about that before the session was even over with, about putting that on the ballot. Th- these things are expensive. In other, words, in other words, to take it out of statute. No, they wouldn't take it out of statute. They just put it into the Constitution. Right. Oh, and then just constitutionalize it yeah. to protect it. Exactly. That's one. The other one, and the one that will make your head spin, is a repeal of Tabor. Of course. The, the, uh, the thing that they hate the most, which is consent for, for raising taxes, uh, and, uh, and growth of government. So why this, why this is an issue is they, they could do this any time, but with the changes recently and a few years back, if I want to put something on the ballot, mm-hmm. I have to get these signatures. If I want to put a constitutional change on the ballot, I have to get signatures in each of the 35 different Senate districts, yep. which is ridiculously expensive. Before that change, and I forget when it was done, less than a decade ago, I could just get signatures anywhere, and it meant that working activists like me, not rich guys, could get something on a constitutional change. Now only very wealthy interests can get things on the ballot for a constitutional change or through the legislature Legislature. if you have a A supermajority. The only thing that stops a constitutional amendment from getting out of the General Assembly right now is one vote in the State Senate. The House already has that supermajority. There are two votes above it. All right, let's talk about the House for a second. Before the election, what were the numbers? 41-24. 41-24. That is just a ridiculous amount. I mean, ridiculous. It's not quite a record, but it's close. All right, and, and today? We are at 46-19, and that is a record. That is a record. We've never had we such nev- a lopsided... We have never had Democrats with that many seats in the General Assembly, ever. Have we ever had one party that's had that much? 
I, I think the Republic, there were probably times way, way, way in the days yeah. of yore uh, where you had, and, and when the Democratic Party wasn't what it is now, you, you may have had supermajority. In fact, I'm fairly certain there were supermajorities by Republicans, but that's, that's so we already have, certainly before my time, I can tell you that. So we already have a supermajority in the House. Yep. So if the governor vetoes something mm -hmm. that progressives really want or Democrats really want, the House can already override it. Yep. And the Senate is only a vote. One vote away. One vote away. So, and and let's let's talk about where this is going. Even though they're one vote away now, think about where things are going to be in two years. You have at least four seats in the Senate that are going to be big targets to build that supermajority. It's Bob Rankin's seat. Uh, Republican. Republican. Uh, you've got a seat down in, in southern uh, Jefferson County that's on the list. Um, Cleve Simpson's seat down in southwestern Colorado. That's, that, is, that seat swung quite a bit left in redistricting. So there, there is a path forward for Democrats to get to that supermajority in two years. Even if they don't just get one Republican to switch over on, on an issue. And I hate to tell exactly. you this. From my experience, Republicans aren't always Republican. Well, look at Kevin Priola. Look at Kevin Priola. <laughs> there's, your perfect, there's your perfect example. Or, or other Republicans who I've termed in, in the last couple of years as the mod squad. <laughs> I, oh, you remember back in the day, uh, Micklejohn. You know, there was always, oh, there's yeah. always, there's always there, a, there was always a Democrat labeled as a Republican. Now, and Republicans, vice, and vice versa. You, know, you always want that person because you need that vote to get into leadership. And that is, that's the key. All right, so I'm watching this go down. And I'm thinking there is one real loser in all this. And his name is Jared Polis. I think Jared Polis is going to have a heck of a fight over the next two to four years here. Um, hurting cats, hurting the cats, well, he, especially in the House. Because what I saw in the last four years was that the progressives in the legislature, I mean, wackadoos in the legislature, were pushing him around, and he signed on to ridiculous bills that, I've known Jared for you know, two decades, that my sense tells me he knows these are bad ideas, but he wasn't going to spend the political capital to, to, to stop them. He, he knows better, but he's doing his own political calculations. He, he wasn't going to spend it. He wasn't going to fight it. In the same way, when John Hickenlooper finally lost, I think it was the House, to Republicans, I think he was like, oh, thank God. I don't have to make these tough decisions of vetoing this stuff or telling them my friends don't send it to me. Polis now is going to be inundated. I mean, you... The, the ridiculous stuff that came to his desk, and he signed almost all of it. Now it's going to come like a fire hydrant. It's going to be ridiculous. And this image, and it is only imagery, of him being a business-friendly, libertarian-ish governor, which he ain't, um, it, that's going to get ripped off real fast because I think they're just going to, he is a mouse and they are a cat that's going to be toying with him. I, th I think the next two years are going to be really weird. <laughs> How do you mean really weird? Put some meat onto that. Um, well, Republicans have been eviscerated by what happened last night in the legislature. 
um, their only path forward is to do what they've been doing, but unfortunately in a much lesser way because their numbers are just that much less, is to try and negotiate with Democrats to make what they view as bad bills better. Um, you saw that with the collective bargaining bill. You saw that even with the fentanyl bill in the, in the 2022 session. I think they're going to have a much, much harder time, not only because their numbers are so much less, but because of what the, the makeup of the, the Democrats in the leg legislature is going to be. This is going to be a far more progressive legislature than what we've seen in quite a long time. I just stopped there for a second. Sorry. You know, I mean, <laughs> we, we had a radical socialist legislature for the last two years. Oh, you and, ain't seen nothing yet. And we ain't seen nothing yet. Oh, that's, thank you. You've just, you made my, my elder years so much more enjoyable. Uh, all Happy right. to help. <laughs> all right, let's, 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 let's play the, the blame game just a little bit. Um, nobody saw this coming. I mean, we saw, again, the marquee players, yeah, I think a lot of people saw what was happening. But down here we said, no, redistricting only helps Republicans. We looked at Boebert's seat, for instance, and you said, no, this, this is even better for, for Lauren Boebert. This is, this is fine. We looked at most of those Senate seats, most of those House seats, uh, state House seats and state Senate yeah. seats. And we said, no, it couldn't get any worse than what we've had for the last decade. These are marginally better than what we had. I remember talking to, to Lundeen, and Lundeen said, this is so different than it was a couple of years ago because we have the funding to, to, to do what we didn't do two years ago. We have actual funding to fight in these, in these seats. And he did, and the Senate Majority Fund, which he runs, this is their soft money group, mm -hmm. did a, the best job that I've ever seen of raising money for these Senate races. They put millions, millions of dollars into uh, these these very very competitive seats, and what they got out of it was was just astonishing. And and I want to bring in redistricting here for a moment. We've been looking at the liens that the redistricting commission attached to each one of these House and Senate seats, particularly the competitive ones. When you say liens, what do you mean? Um, for example, uh, you you could look at Senate District Twenty, which I think had a five maybe five percent Democratic lien. Um, Senate District 8, about the same. Uh, Senate District 24, which is up in Thornton, that one I think was like, like a 12% Democratic lean. Meaning, the, when the redistricting commission made these estimations, they looked at the election in uh, all the elected offices in 2018, the statewide elected offices. Uh, they looked at the 2016 presidential race in Colorado, not the national. They looked at what happened in 2020, and they said, okay, here's all these different, and Democrats won all of this. So when we looked at the numbers that came out from the redistricting commission, the, the conventional wisdom from people that I talked to said, nah, they way overestimated Democratic performance. This is not going to hold up in 2022. And I think that that was part of the logic behind expecting that there was going to be more Republican wins on Tuesday night is because there was such this, this overestimation by five percentage points, I think was the number I heard from a couple of folks, overestimated by 5%. So a seat that might be estimated at like 2.5% Democratic lean is actually a 2.5% Republican lean. 
That's a seat. That's you what can, they were thinking. That's that's where that's where the thinking. So came Republicans from. were thinking this is a very competitive seat. This is when a very in fact it wasn't, and it was, and it turned out not I have, to I have be. A, I have a similar theory about um, the polling, which was in 2016, uh, Republicans keep as personality keep their cards closer to the vest. They don't tell posters the truth or don't talk to them as often, and so we found out that pollsters underrepresented. Uh, Republicans in their little formulas. Uh, every pollster, it's like like a chef. They all have their own little magic of how they, you know, who what what they weigh in their in their numbers. And so this time they weren't going to make that mistake. Right. And so they put into their mixture more Republicans because they weren't going to make that mistake. And so all all these seats looked a lot more competitive Absolutely. than they were. Uh, for instance, the the Bennett O'Day seat, O'Day was within the margin. Of error, he was up, down by a point and a half um, going into the going into this last weekend. Yeah, that was an out. That was kind of an outlier poll, though. But they were all outlier polls, as it turns <laughs> as out. As it turns out, yeah, yeah, I guess that's. I guess that's. All right, true. so so bringing it bringing it back to the blame game, I want to ask the the abortion question. For for those of us who are junkies, we understand the abortion ruling was from the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. None of these elections have anything to do with it. Pam Anderson, I have no idea what her position on abortion is. It doesn't matter. The Secretary of State has no jurisdiction over abortion. You know, it just doesn't. The Treasurer doesn't do anything on abortion. You know, unless they move up into higher office. Um, and Colorado has arguably the most lax abortion law in in the country. There's there's just it, it's a non-issue in this state, but yet it seems as though that was in the fog of all this and overweighed the, the uh, crime and economics and inflation. So what was, what was it that got, that got people voting it D was, instead of R? It was abortion. Do you and think, it, you, uh, that's what I'm asking. Statistically, we know that, that that was a factor. Um, Tell me how we know this. We, uh, Evan Wylos, who has done data analysis for us, and us I... Us being the Gazette and Colorado Politics. Right. We did a piece here about a month ago looking at the impact of the Dobbs decision on voter registration. When you had, when the leak came out in, in May, you saw a spike, boom, big spike in Democratic women, unaffiliated women, even Republican women women. Voter registrations just went boom, way up. And then when the final decision came out in June, another spike. That was driving people to register to vote. Now, would it tra- you know, our big question was, would it translate into actual people showing up at the ballot box and making decisions based on that? I, I, I think we may have seen some of that in what happened last night. Polling, again, polling showed that as the election got closer, even those suburban women were more concerned about economic issues than the abortion issues. And if you're a Colorado woman concerned with both, you would know, you should know, that the law here in Colorado, it's not an issue. It's just, it is safe. It's safer than it's safe. It's, you, abortion's not going away anytime soon. Uh, but still, 
that still played because the people who vote in these issues are not like us. They're not junkies. They don't follow the the law saying, no, Colorado has the most uh, liberal abortion law. It's it's legal up until the moment of birth, you know, and that's, you know, and that this legislature passed it to even make it more so. So I I get that. Um, so, I, but it's, it's, from your point of view, if there was, if you could boil down this Republican carnage to one issue, and I know it's a million, you think it's abortion? I, I think that that did have, I think it had a more significant role than I think most people are willing to acknowledge. Just based on the data that we looked at, and if, if, that, was, if that was the driver uh, for people to register to vote, it, it maybe wasn't quite the driver for election night because the issue seemed to die down a little bit. But the candidates didn't help themselves by continuing to bring it up over and over and over again. It was a reminder every single day that this is what is at risk. And Which it candidates brought it up every time? Kirkmeyer did it all the time. Caraveo did it all the time. Well, but mind you, Caraveo should bring it up every time to point it out on her, on, on her opponent. Right, right, right. But but uh, this this was a constant refrain in a lot of the advertising that was on TV. And every time you heard that word abortion, it was like, oh, Dobbs, we don't, we can't, we can't even, afford even, to have even that. Even though it was ridiculous, because obviously the abortion laws aren't going to change in this state. Well, even even soon. even the O'Day ones when. During the primary, right. you know, you're 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 beating him up. The Democrats were beating him up because he was pro-abortion, and then those same Democratic dollars were beating him up in the general because he was anti-anti-abortion. Anti yeah. but, but that's the nature of politics. But I I think the messaging on abortion was effective, even 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 if you felt really secure about what the law in Colorado says about abortion. Uh, that that's not going to change anytime soon. You have you now have people coming in from a lot of other states. Let me throw one more thought out to to get abortions here. This is a sanctuary state for abortion, and yeah. I think that's also in people's minds. Let me throw one more thing out, which is basic fundamentals. I still believe that the left has the ground game down, the blocking and tackling, if you will, fundamentals, fundamentals, fundamentals. Absolutely. The community organizing, the knocking on doors. I live in, in Boulder, uh, city of Boulder. This is not a city that needs to worry about are their local politicians going to win uh, their, their races for the legislature. Um, my son who has Down syndrome, since he has a state ID, automatically gets a ballot, which I find rather interesting. And I'm always there going, you know, should I help him do this? I no, I can't help him do this. You know, he can't read. He has, you know, no real opinion on this stuff. And sure enough, over the weekend, knock, 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 uh, two lovely women from the Democratic Party are there to help him vote. Oh, dear. All right. And um, I was like, wait a second. What possibly do you need him? You're going to win everything in Boulder. Do you, you know, so I guess you can help with Polish. You can help with the uh, uh, ballot initiatives. You can help with the senator. Uh, if, if you help him vote, uh, but that's the hardcore, down and dirty, ugly, expensive ground game that the left has organized, paid for, and mans. And I still don't see Republicans doing. 
not enough. Do, 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 I, do I have a point there? I, I, you do have a point there. There are folks on the right, um, my, the people that Michael Fields works with, the uh, Americans for Prosperity, they do a lot of ground game work, but it's from the, at least what I've seen, and I look at campaign finance reports. I'm, I'm, and by the way, he's no longer with them. No, no, yeah, I know, I right. know. It's right. Adva Advanced, Advanced Colorado, Colorado Institute. Yeah. Oh, I get that, but they do it in a very, very limited way. And I, right. I think Democrats have have a much bigger universe that they can work with on these things, particularly. And and so, I, and I think that is part of it. That you've you've got people who are on the right who are really good at this, but there's not enough of them, and there and there isn't. And when you look at how much gets spent. And I love campaign finance. I, I watch it obsessively. There's considerably more money being spent on these efforts on the left than there is on the right. That's just that's just add some meat to that. What do you mean considerably more? When you look at give me a ratio. Um, over over the last couple of years, and and maybe this year because of the Senate Majority Fund ha doing such a great job of of raising of raising money this year, um, you see a lot of non-monetary contributions, and you know about this because this is what you guys do too, um, that is used for canvassing, door knocking, you know, getting out there, and, and there is a cost involved with that. It's, a not, it's called a non-monetary contribution, but I've seen, there's, there's been a great, I've seen some growth in those non-monetary contributions in this election cycle that, that was kind of a surprise. Frankly, um, a lot of money being spent on the ground game more than than I've seen in the past. I, and I can't tell you the exact dollar amounts because it's spread out over multiple independent expenditure committees and issue committees and all that. But I think there was I think there was more money, and I'll and I'll look at this. But I think there was more money spent on the ground game this year than we've seen in the past. On both sides. Mm hmm. Yeah. But still, as a ratio, two to one. Two to one, easily. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a lot more than that. It's pro it's probably more than that, but but I'm I'm very comfortable at two to one. Yeah, I I put it four to one, but we can argue about that later. All right, let's dispel this one. So help me with this one. You've been following this for a long time. I guarantee you, when the dust settles, there will be still some of the same old folks who are going to go. You know why we lost? Because we didn't have a true conservative at the top of these tickets. If only we had Ron Hanks, if only we had uh, Greg Lopez, if only we had Tina Peters there, th that would have been the clear choice that we would have needed to give voters in Colorado um, uh, uh, what they needed to see this. And that would have rippled down throughout, throughout the ballot. I, I don't agree. I think I think if, if no, you're wrong. <laughs> I think if if that had been at the top of the ticket, you you would wind up you you could potentially wind up with a supermajority in the Senate, and you certainly would have seen in, instead of 17 points, which is I think where where the polls can all race is right now, 25 points. Why would you see that? Why? Because it, it's it's all about unaffiliated voters, and. I think a lot of them could look at Ganahl and certainly at Joe O'Day and some and, and and some of the other folks at the top of the ticket. They 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 did so unaffiliated voters did go ahead and and vote for Republicans this year. Look at what happened in the primary. That was decided yep. by unaffiliated Without voters. 
without a doubt. That was decided by unaffiliated voters who wound up at the top of the of the GOP ticket. You put if you put the the Ron Hanks and the Greg Lopez's and the Tina Peters in there, you're going to scare away more unaffiliated voters than you're going to gain. And in my opinion, just just because of what happened in June with the primary, it was unaffiliated voters who decided who was on the ticket this year. How long have you lived in Colorado? Forty years. Okay. You're a newbie. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> and we're tired of you people moving into our state and ruining it. So for those of us who've been around, I've made this state a lot better. Oh, no, you haven't, woman. Oh, you haven't. Go back to wherever the hell you came from. Um, so for those of us, uh, I've, I've been here since six years old. All right, and so. Uh, to see oh, so you're a carpetbagger too? No, no. My my parents were the cheap carpetbaggers. Let me tell you. Uh, no, so I I've, I've been here. Oh my God, fifty two years. Oh my God. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm, I, I thank don't mean you. to depress you. Yeah, thank you. Oh, so little time. Anyway, to see how the state has changed from from my point of view as. Um, as a place where people really came to, to, to unleash their talents, to take risk, to, there was a lot of freedom here, there was a lot of space, and to see it turn, I'll use my terminology, to turn into much more of a command and control, California-esque style of, of government, it has completely changed. The, the change has, also, has really happened, I believe, because of demographic shifts. Mm -hmm. uh, the Denver Post a couple of years ago put together just a wonderful analysis, and it showed that most of the influx into Colorado over the years has come from number one, California. Number two, Texas. New York. New York. Number three, Illinois. So uh, you have these, you know, failed big government states. People are 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 leaving. I think taking, and they're acclimated to big government. What I found even more interesting was the outflow. People like me who've had enough of this who wanted their freedom back, and they go to Wyoming first, then Texas, Texas. and then Florida. Mm -hmm. And so you're, you're fighting a demographic change. And for those of us who have been here a lot longer than you folks, uh, <laughs> it feels like, like the Chinese overrunning the Korean border. You know, it's just like, how do you, how do you fight this? And we forget the, the character has, has just changed uh, and and for those of us who who love the state for its freedom, uh, for for its limited government, for the ability to to go take risk, we wonder if it can ever ever uh, go back to the way it was. And I and I know I'm oversimplifying this. My old man came out here. He was born in the Bronx, raised, and he wanted some place to raise his kids uh, where he could you know, direct his own life. I get a feeling people come here now because it's beautiful, the skiing is good, and I can do my job on a computer anywhere. And it just seems different. Um, I wonder how much of this is a demographic change that we just can't fight. I don't, <clears throat> I don't, I don't think you can fight it. And, and I blame political polarization, and it's both, and it's both sides, and you know it's both sides. Um, people are being drawn to where they think their political interests are served. 
uh, the Californias, the New Yorks, the Illinois coming coming here, the folks who are going to Texas and Florida, and and I'm hearing more and more of that from somebody saying I've had it with this state. I'm going yeah. to I'm going to go move to Texas. I'm going to go someplace else. The 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 political polarization that we have seen over the last well, probably almost 20 years now, I think, is, is, is driving a lot of this, and I don't know that you can reverse it. And it, it breaks my heart, because I, you know, for those of us who grew up here, it doesn't feel like home anymore, and it feels uh, uh, very unwelcoming. So, you have, do you have any concerns about one-party control up to this level of supermajority? I've never seen anything like this. I haven't, I haven't either, and, 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 Personally, I'm not a fan of one-party control, um, and I'll just I'll just put that out there. This is why we need a monarch, right? <laughs> um, but I I don't know that we're going to see anything different from that at least over the next four years. Why four? You don't think we're going to find some big solution in two years? No, I don't. Why not? I, well, obviously, Polis isn't going to go anywhere for the next for the next four years. You don't think he's going to run for president? No. Why not? Because I, I think Biden will talk him out of it. Biden is getting more and more, moving more and more toward making that announcement. I, I think, I, I could see Polis running for president maybe in 2028. I, I don't see him running in 24. I, I, do I think he's interested? Absolutely. I'm just not sure that he's going to be able to do that. If, if Biden chooses to go forward in 2024, I think Polis sits it out. If something happens to Biden? All bets are off. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> All bets are off. I don't, I don't see Republicans gaining a lot of ground in the House, in the State House, in two years. I, I, could they? Sure. Um, but this, this, was, this was such a, a, you know, Tuesday night was just a really, really bad night for the Republican Party. And the Republican Party needs to do a lot, I think needs to do a lot of, self-reflection on why voters aren't uh, aren't drawn to what the Republican Party is selling right now. Election deniers probably, you know, we, we didn't we didn't we had a few of them that were running at the state level in this election cycle. Most of them wound up getting sent home doesn't stop the fact that there we still have a strong cadre of election deniers and people of that persuasion within the Republican Party. They're still there, and as long as they're allowed to run things in a, in a couple of places, um, I, I think that's going to keep people from taking Republicans seriously. You've got to go after those unaffiliated voters. That's where the future is, and right now they're running about 60-40 in favor of the Democrats. How do you switch that? You got to find something that appeals to them, and the Republicans have not found that place yet. This has been delightful, sure, fun, <laughs> uh, uplifting. Um, so, you want to go have these in a membership of the Hemlock Society with me, perhaps? Oh, sure. <laughs> Marianne, it's always great talking with you. It's going to be an interesting uh, session coming up. So, oh, we'll yeah. be reading everything you do in the Gazettes and, of course, Colorado politics. Thanks for joining me. Very happy to join you. Thank <laughs> you for asking.
This is John Caldera, and I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Devil's Advocate. Listen to any of our other episodes now on all streaming services, with new episodes being released weekly. 